Uh, we're going to begin a leadership, or we're going to continue our leadership um, series looking at, at leadership within the church. And so if you weren't with us last week, last week we looked at congregationalism. So we laid the foundation for congregationalism. Uh, and so I'm going to briefly recap that. Um, so, so we as a church, we're congregational. And so, so I'm laying out the, the levels of authority with the church, within the church. And I think I have the, the, the diagram up there again, but, but we looked at Christ as the head and then right under him, we have the congregation. And so congregationalism, as, as I argued last week, simply presents a picture of each local church governing its own affairs under the lordship of Christ. And so it's each local church is autonomous. There, there's no external authority or, or government or system or organization that, that, that exercises authority over this local church. So we don't have an individual. I, I'm not the bishop in charge. Okay, we don't have a group of leaders. There's not a presbytery or, or some other assembly that, that has authority over us. In congregationalism, the congregation exercised the ultimate human authority in the church. So, so we looked at that last week. The, the congregation, the church members have final authority, ultimate human authority under the lordship of Christ. Now we said that, that just because it's the, the final and ultimate authority, it's not the only authority. And we'll look at that um, Lord willing, next week. But that's, that's, fun, that's the, the foundation of, of congregationalism. It, that's the definition. Uh, and then, then last week, the, the main, I spent the rest of the sermon looking at why congregationalism is safe, why it's necessary, why it's appropriate. And that was because New Testament congregations are made up of new covenant believers. And so we spent the whole rest of the time looking at the nature of the new covenant and so the almost the entire sermon was highlighting the significance of the new covenant in establishing the ability for church members to function authoritatively in the church. In other words, think of the structural changes in the new covenant as opposed to the old. In the new covenant, all of God's people are empowered and gifted by the Spirit. Every single member. All members have access to God, equal access to God, and all know God. In fact, Peter would say that, that all are priests and so as such, because that's the reality of the new covenant, the entire congregation should be involved in the governance of the church. And not only should the whole congregation be involved, it is actually safe and right for the whole congregation to be involved. The new covenant is the foundation for congregationalism. So we saw that last week. But this week, as we continue to look at congregationalism, we're going to be looking specifically at the New Testament passages that teach, and I would say pretty clearly and hopefully at the end of this sermon, you'll think pretty clearly also that the congregation has the authority in the church. Okay, so our outline is going to be, is going to be pretty simple. We have one main point with four subpoints. So our main point is simply congregational authority in the New Testament or evidence of congregationalism. So we're just going to look at, at text after text. Okay, and then the four areas where we're going to look at uh, where we see the congregation exercising authority or, or the, the circumstances where the congregation has authority are, first look at in, in regulating or maintaining the purity of the church. Then we'll see the congregation has authority in the appointing of leaders or the choosing of leaders. Then we'll see the congregation has authority for establishing and maintaining pure doctrine. And then lastly, we'll see that the congregation has the authority to maintain or, or, or to, to cultivate the overall health of the church. So that's, that's kind of our outline. We're going to work through each of those subpoints as, as we go. Um, so so let's, let's, as, we, as we begin, let's, let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray together. 
Father, we are, we are your people. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And so we are precious in your sight. We're valuable in your sight. Uh, we're, we're perfect in your sight. Uh, but we're also called to serve on your behalf and to exercise authority in this body. And so I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a, a desire to use our authority for your purposes, that we might be a church that is pure, that is led by godly leaders, that, that holds to a, a pure gospel and pure doctrine, and that is, that is always moving towards health. And so help us as a congregation to, to move towards that end. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so congregational authority in the New Testament. I wonder if someone asks you, why are you congregational? I wonder what you would answer other than, it's always, it's always been that way. I've grown up in a Baptist church, right? So, so I want you to be able to leave here with, with lots of evidence and support as to why we're congregational, because I think it's biblical. I wouldn't be a Baptist pastor if I didn't think it was biblical. So we're going to look first at the purity of the church. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at Matthew 18. But first we're going to see the purity of the church. We're going to see that New Testament congregation or the assembly has the authority and the responsibility to maintain the purity of the church. Now we're going to start in Matthew 18. We're also going to look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. And we're going to see, especially in these first two passages, in the Matthew passage and the 1 Corinthians passage, Paul and Jesus both assume that when an issue arises where there are people within the church, where there are church members, Christians who are refusing to turn from their sin, when that's the case and there's a refusal to repent, Jesus and Paul both assume that the church has the authority and even the responsibility to remove that person from membership. In these cases, it's the responsibility of the church, of the congregation, not the pastors, not a group of leaders, but the church to remove the members. And they do so for the sake of the purity of the church. We'll see that. And then the last passage in 2 Corinthians 2, the focus isn't on removing a member, but instead receiving back a member that has been removed and has now repented and is wanting to come back. Okay, so, so we'll see in all three of these passages, that the church has the authority and the responsibility to remove members and to receive members. We must not miss the bigger point, which is that this authority is given, not, just, not to puff up the congregation, but for the good of the congregation, so that the congregation might maintain its purity. So let's start there in Matthew 18. So I'm going to read, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 of chapter 18. These are the words of Jesus. Maybe you've heard them before. But, but follow along as I read at the outset. So Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so notice, 
in this passage, and it's first from the beginning, the whole purpose. So, so, so the circumstance is someone has committed a sin. It's a clear sin. It's clearly uh, against God. It's clearly a, an unbiblical action or attitude. There's clear sin. And then the situation, the goal is for this individual to recognize their wrong and to be reconciled with the person that they've sinned against. That's the whole purpose of this process is to bring about repentance. Okay, so that's why verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And if he listens, you gained a brother. The, the, the process is over. Repentance has been accomplished and there's reconciliation. Right? So, so that's the whole purpose. So, so pra- practical application, if someone has sinned against you and you're offended, you should go to them and confront them in love and say, here's what's happened. Here's why this is unbiblical. Here's, here's a, a passage that teaches that what you've done is wrong. If they repent, they say, I'm so sorry. I didn't know, or yes, you're right, and I'm sorry. End of story. It stops there. There's reconciliation. If he, if he listens, Jesus meaning, if, if he acknowledges his or her wrong and he repents, the whole process is over. That's, that's what we want. That should be your, your hope and prayer for every time you want to confront someone. But notice verse 16. If he does not listen... Jesus says, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so Jesus says, okay, you go. He doesn't listen. If he doesn't listen, if if he refuses to acknowledge wrongdoing, if he refuses to repent, Jesus says, well, we'll get a couple more. Get one or two others to go with you. The point is for the wrongdoer to realize it's not just a matter of personal preference. And so the presence of more people conveys the seriousness of the issue at hand. So you bring a couple other. Again, if someone is in blatant sin that they refuse to acknowledge, they need to be confronted. And so Jesus says, go to your, don't involve anyone else. But if they refuse, well, then you need to bring others so that they recognize that, that the issue is larger than just a, a personal quibble. And so verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, after the wrongdoer refuses to listen to the individual and then to the group, the final step in the process involves, notice who is involved. Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, this is the church. This is the local community. This is not the universal church. This is the local community. It's it's not just the leaders of the church, not just a few in the church. Jesus says the final step is tell it to the church. And the entire church is to be involved because, and this is the whole point, the purity of that church is at stake. This means going before the church, making the church, making the issue known. Remember that this issue has only gotten more and more escalated because the wrongdoer is simply refusing to repent, to acknowledge wrongdoing. Repentance always ends the process. We never want it to get to this state, but Jesus says if there's a refusal and a refusal and a refusal to repent, the the last step is to involve the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Jesus says the final step is to let him be to you as a Gentile in a tax collector, which is simply another way of saying cast him out of the church. Remove him from the church. That's what Jesus says is the final step. If he refuses to listen, cast him out. Treat him as a non-believer. Which, I mean, just to be clear, the church isn't to treat non-Christians harshly or unlovingly. He's not saying hate them. He's saying treat them as a non-Christian. 
Christians are to treat non-Christians with love and concern. Jesus' point is that when someone refuses to listen to the entire local community, that person, like all non-Christians, needs more than anything else the gospel. They need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And so when Jesus says, treat them as a non-Christian, you don't shun them and say, I'm never talking to you again. You say, I'm going to talk to you, but I'm going to move towards you with a gospel concern. Casting someone out is the final step that a church can take when someone is refusing to turn from their sin. And this casting out is for the good of the unrepentant sinner. It isn't unloving. It isn't unloving. It's actually the most loving thing that a church can do. In fact, to refuse to address clear sin in the life of another church member is actually the most unloving thing that you could do. Because those living in continual unrepentant sin will go straight to hell in their unrepentant sin. And so if you say, oh, no, I'm not gonna, I, I, can't, I can't address that. That's just their thing. I can't do that. That is unloving. Jesus has given us a process so that this individual might recognize the danger and might turn from their sin. And so this action, is a, this is a call to action for the church, and it's for the good of the individual as much as it's for the sake of the purity of the church. And Jesus gives these instructions because the church, as the final human authority, has the responsibility to ensure that it remains pure. And so, when you have individuals within the church refusing to repent of clear sins, living in unrepentant sin, living ungodly or evil lives, those individuals have a problem, yes, but the church that they're part of also has a problem. It is a family matter. The purity of the church is the responsibility of the congregation. The congregation has a God-given authority to act. That's the point Jesus makes. Now, now before everyone gets angry at me, let me just offer a clarification that I think will be helpful. This is not an issue of a church saying, so when this final step is, is reached, it's not an issue of a church saying, you're not perfect, so you're kicked out. That's not, what, that's not what's going on here. It's not the church saying, you screwed up big time, you ruined your chance. It's done. You're, you're done. That's not what's going on here. That's not it. That's never the motivation or attitude of a church in pursuing an individual through this process. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should hear me say that no one is perfect. No one is perfect. This isn't a call to perfection. We would all be kicked out. And so, so just hear that. I'm not perfect. I sin. I sin regularly. And that's why I need Jesus. I'm not perfect, but he is. And he makes me perfect so that now I become what I actually am. His righteousness has been credited to me by faith alone. I'm accepted on his performance, not my own. So ju just know that. We'd all be kicked out. In fact, the, the late Charles Spurgeon once said... If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. At the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Right? And so there, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Christianity is not about fixing yourself and, and being perfect. That's, that's not it. Okay, this church is not a place for those who have their acts together. Okay, so, so come as you are. Come as you are with, with all your mess, with all your junk, with all your baggage. Right? This is not a place where you're going to be shunned 
for your mess. We all have mess. This, is a church, this church is a place for those who've come to realize, or at least who hope to realize, that we are far, far worse off than we think we are, but that Jesus is far better than we think he is. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the, that's the hope of our church. We're all on our own journeys. We've all, got, we've all got baggage behind us, and we come here around Jesus because he's the only one that can fix us. We don't clean ourselves up and then come here. And so just know that, non-Christian, Jesus doesn't care about your junk. He, he, he died for you so that you might be forgiven of your junk, but he's not going to leave you in your junk. And so following Christ does mean change. It does mean transformation. But that's after you've come to know him. That's part of the process. That's not the entry point. You don't have to, have to fix yourself. And so this action taken by the church isn't saying you're not perfect, so you're out. That's not what the church is saying. But this action taken by the church is saying, and this is different, what it is saying is that Jesus died to save you from your sin, so why are you continuing to live in it? Why are you refusing to turn from your sin? When a church removes a member for unrepentant sin, it is saying, if Christ is your Lord, if you love him, if you follow him, if you worship him, then you're going to obey what he says. And time and time again, we see that when a Christian is confronted with clear biblical sin, he or she eventually repents. After all, every Christian has the Spirit within them who is convicting. And so when you bring Scripture to bear, the Spirit testifies, this is right. And repentance is the eventual response. And so that's always the hope. But when an individual doesn't repent, now again, this, I, I'm making this point over and over. When someone refuses to repent of clear biblical sin, and has been confronted by an individual and a group, an entire church, when that person refuses to repent, that individual is giving the strongest proof possible that he or she is not a Christian. And when that's the case, the church must step in and action must be taken. And that action that the church takes has authority, it carries weight, which is the point that Jesus makes there in verses 18 through 20. So look at, look at verse 18. This is, this is Jesus emphasizing the authority of the church. He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is affirming the power and authority of the gathered congregation. So whatever action the church takes, right, in this context, it's dealing with an unrepentant sinner. Whatever action the church takes on earth, Jesus says it's as good as done in heaven. Right? It's, it's powerful. I'm behind this decision, Jesus says. It's more than just an earthly decision. It's more than just a difference of opinion. This is a divinely commanded and backed process. And so when the church comes to this decision, Jesus is affirming whatever you decide together corporately as a congregation, I affirm. There's authority there. Jesus is saying you can act with confidence because where the church is gathered and where the church acts in this way for its purity, there I am with them. I mean, look at verse 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among him. This promise, where two or three are gathered, isn't separated from prayer. We always hear this in the context of prayer. It's not separated from prayer. But the immediate context here is what just happened in, verse, in, in chapter 18 in the verses prior. What just happened is that they have removed a member. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
And so Jesus says, where this is the case, where there's this congregational agreement and affirmation, there I am. And so here we see in Matthew 18, Jesus, this is the most important passage in dealing with the church's responsibility and authority. That's not the only passage. Let's look next at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We'll we'll be briefly looking at chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I'll give you a brief summary of what's going on. Because in these verses, in these first 13 verses, or actually all of chapter 5, Paul assumes that the church possesses the authority to do exactly what Jesus just talked about. So Jesus gives the hypothetical. Paul addresses the practical, the real, what has just happened. And so in the church at Corinth, who Paul is writing this letter to, Paul gets word of of a situation that's going on there. And this is a situation that's taking place within the church. And what's happening, what's happened within this church is there's a man who is a church member of the church at Corinth, maybe First Baptist Corinth, There's a church member who's having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. That's what's going on. I mean, right there in verse 1, I'm going to read it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So Paul hears that's what's happening. He can't believe it, that within the church, this is, is taking place. It's within the context. He says the, the non-Christians don't even do that. And here you are, the Christians who are, who are engaging in this. And Paul says, I'm writing to you because you don't care that this is happening. You should care, Paul says. And so in verse 2, instead of being proud, which apparently they were, Paul says you ought to be mourning for this situation, for, for the evil of this situation, and for the damage that this type of relationship is causing to the name of Christ there in Corinth. And so Paul calls the church to carry out action. Again, he calls the church. Look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Then listen to the call to action that Paul gives to the congregation at Corinth. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him be removed from among you. Now again, there's a lot of details that we're not going to get into here, but Paul assumes that the church, as a whole, the plural you has the authority to remove this man from membership. And again, this authority is to be used because the purity of the church is at stake. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, all throughout these chapters, Paul is is emphasizing the, the untold damage being done to the name of Christ by this church. Whether it's lawsuits among believers, whether it's sexual morality, whether it's this relationship, Paul's saying, you are doing damage to the name of Christ. There's impurity within the church. And so Paul cause the congregation to remove this member. Which means the congregation has the authority to remove this member. And so as Paul continues, as, as we go all the way through there, the end of chapter 5, look down at verse 12. Notice this. You, you, need, to, you need to follow along with your eyes because you probably won't believe what Paul says to the church at the end of chapter 5. I'll start in, in verse 11. I'm, well, I'll start in verse 12. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So he's just talked about associating with those that are not part of the church. He says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? But notice how he continues. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Paul says, You're supposed to judge those inside the church. 
You're supposed to judge those inside the church. Paul tells the church at Corinth. Don't worry about judging outsiders. Christian, you have no, you have no right judging those outside. That's, that's God's realm. He'll take care of that. But when those come to Christ and claim the name of Christ, when they claim the name of Christ and they're, they're doing things that Christ does not command and refusing to repent, that's who the church is called to judge. And Paul says there's authority here to purge this person, to remove this person from their midst. And this removal, this excommunication, as Paul understands it, is a form of judgment. And the responsibility is not on the pastor, not on the, con- or not on the le- uh, select group of leaders, but the congregation is responsible for judging in this way. Now, this judgment, again, it's not for the purpose of vengeance or humiliation. The whole point, the whole reason that Paul says cast him out is so that he might recognize his soul is at stake. If he doesn't repent, his soul is at stake. And so this casting out is is a wake-up call. And the whole point is for him to repent. That's the goal. Just like Jesus made it the goal of Matthew 18. That's the goal here. And the church exercising this, this authority is the last resort. And it's the the last effort that the church makes at bringing about reconciliation and repentance. And so it's the authority of the congregation that Paul is calling for them to exercise. And so Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, that's both the removal. We'll we'll flip over to 2 Corinthians 2, because here's another text, another situation where Paul emphasizes the authority or the, the responsibility of the church. But in this case... So as before in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, it's the removal of members. Here in 2 Corinthians 2, it's actually the the receiving of a member. And so in 2 Corinthians 2, this may be the same guy. We don't know. It may be. I think it's probably a different situation. But here in 2 Corinthians 5, the issue isn't that the church isn't doing anything. It's not inaction. The problem is that the church has removed a member after which point it served its purpose and the member wants to come back after repenting and recognizing his wrong and the church is refusing to receive him back. And so look there at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, If anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So yeah, he's hurt all of you, is what Paul is saying. But for such a one, this punishment by majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so we don't know the specifics, but the entire church who had been caused pain by the sin of this individual had punished this man by removing him from the church. They cast him out. And Paul says he's come back, so receive him back. He's been punished, and it served its purpose. But now the church is saying, no, we don't want him back. He hurt us too, ma- too much. It was too bad. And notice two things about, about this passage in 2 Corinthians 2. First, did you notice how Paul described the punishment? It was a punishment by majority, Paul says. Now, the King James says many, but every other translation says majority, which is important because it assumes that removing someone from the church involved a majority, which assumes that there was some type of vote. I mean, they probably didn't have paper sheets to, to mark, but, but there's some type of vote. You don't have an unofficial majority. If you have a majority, it's an official There is more on this side than on this side. That's what a majority is. It's a very specific term, which conveys the idea, again, that the church at Corinth, as a local community, had the authority to make a decision by majority. 
But the second thing to note here is that the church was also responsible for receiving him back after he repented. This, this removal is not, in, it's not permanent. It can always be reversed by repentance. And Paul says, you receive him back. You have the authority to remove him, but you also have the authority and responsibility to receive him back. A failure to do so would miss the point of the entire process that you've gone through. Repentance is always the goal. And so we see Jesus and Paul both teach that, that the church has the authority to remove members, but here in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul teaches they have the authority to receive him back. It is their job to do so. So the congregation has the authority to remove and to receive members, which is always done for the sake of the purity of the church. And so just by way of application, if you're a church member, whether here or somewhere else, wherever you're a church member, you ought to feel the weight of your responsibility for others. You are responsible for the purity of your local church. And you and I have been given a playbook for dealing with sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. It's, it's not to avoid them or to ignore them. It's not to talk about them behind their backs. It is to confront them in love face-to-face by yourself first. That, that should be happening regularly in a church. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but every single one of you sitting here and every single person to your right and to your left is someone who sins regularly. Okay, if, if you're married, your spouse is going to sin against you regularly. You're going to sin against your spouse regularly. If you, if you long to be married one day, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage where there's no sin, at least humanly speaking. And so human relationships are always going to be involved, are always going to include sinning against one another. And so when it happens, you shouldn't say, oh, I'm done with them. They hurt my feelings. No, you say, okay, is this a, is this a preference? Did my feelings get hurt? Or is this a genuine sin issue? If it's a genuine sin issue, you say, I'm going to move towards them in love. If your feelings are hurt, you check yourself and say, I, I got to bear with them. I got to bear with them. As a church member, you're responsible to care for your brothers and sisters this way. There's no reason so when you're, late, when you're in a relationship with someone who's in clear sin and you have the clear support of Scripture, there's no reason for you not to approach him or her with confidence, recognizing that God has ordained you as the way to get them back. You can't determine his or her response, but you can determine your demeanor and your heart attitude in approaching them. And so examine yourself before you go. I want us to be a congregation of men and women who care enough about one another to address sin in each other's lives. And I'm, I'm not above this. I want you to feel free to say, Pastor, the way you talk to this individual, the way you spoke to your wife, or whatever, the, whatever you see, I want you to know that by God's grace, I'm going to hear what you say. And I'm going to recognize it's the, the worst thing that anyone can say about me is no worse than what the cross of Christ has already said about me. And so I want us to be a congregation of men and women who recognize that we are to care for one another and to address sin in each other's lives, but also want us to be men and women who recognize our own sinful nature enough to recognize that we are called to humbly receive rebuke or correction when coming from a brother or sister. This is the means that God has ordained to, to keep us pure as individuals and as a body. Well, it's not just the purity of the church. Let's move second to the, the, the next uh, area where the church has given authority, and that's the appointing of leaders. And so we're going to look at two passages in Acts. So the appointing of leaders, and these, these will we'll move quicker through these next 
sections in case you're looking at your watch. So Acts chapter 6, the appointing of leaders. So I'm going to read these first five verses of Acts chapter 6. So this is Jesus has died. He's, he's ascended. He sent his spirit. The Holy Spirit has indwelled the, the disciples. They've preached. Peter preaches at Pentecost. All these people are saved. They, they receive the spirit. And it's, it's a gospel explosion. Okay, and so all these people are hearing the gospel and, and being added to the church in Jerusalem. And so here's a conflict that arises in the church in Jerusalem. So listen to Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. These are just two races, two ethnicities. They're now part of the same church. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's a problem. Verse 2, and the twelve summoned, these are twelve disciples, they summoned the full member of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that we as the, the apostles should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. And they set, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so, it, so here, the, the thing to notice, verse 5, is that the, the congregation, the whole gathering, is, is, is giving approval to this process, to the choosing of these men. Now, we recognize here in, in the book of Acts that the early church, the church is still developing. Right? The gospel is just beginning to spread from Jerusalem. And so we don't have a bunch of local churches. We don't have an established church order yet. I think there's a pattern here that, that's going to carry through the rest of the book of Acts. And we'll see this when we look at the offices of elders and deacons. I think both offices are seen here in their early stages. But in Acts 6, as it relates to the congregation... The apostles are there, the, the 12 disciples, the ones who walked with Jesus, the ones who have all authority. And so when there's a problem, the apostles, if anyone could just say, hey, you guys do it. The apostles had that authority, yet they don't exercise that authority. Instead, they get the approval of the whole gathering. Do you see how that, that, that assumes that the congregation has authority even higher than the apostles? The apostles can't just come in and say, okay, they're doing this. These are the seven. Pick them. We're, we're going to do it. They say, hey, you guys pick them. And then you're going to approve them. And then we're going to pray for them. And we're going to lay hands on them. And then they're going to go serve. And so the congregation, the Christians there in Jerusalem are responsible. The whole gathering chose these seven men and set them before the apostles. And so the apostles we see deferring to the congregation. The congregation decided. Well, look, flip over to Acts 15. Acts 15, again, we see this, this, this situation. Acts 6 and Acts 15 are huge in these discussions. But in Acts chapter 15, the, there's, the stage is set for this huge conflict between some of the apostles, between Paul and Peter, between these two groups of Christians in the early church. And it had to do with, with observance of the law. There are Jewish Christians who said, if you want to be a, a true Christian, you've got to keep this part of the law. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not true. It's faith alone. You don't, have to, you don't have to keep any of the law. It's faith in Jesus. Jesus abolishes the law. Jesus fulfills the law. It's not about the law. And so there's this, 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 this conflict comes to a head. And in chapter 15, there's this council, the Jerusalem council, and they're going to work it out. And so in 15, verse 2, notice, just follow along as I read. 
Well, I'll start in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, in other words, in other, unless you keep the law, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so notice the word appointed. There's a big issue. Paul and Barnabas are convinced. They are teaching a false gospel. But Paul and Barnabas don't say, we're going. Instead, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed. So the congregation there sends Paul and Barnabas says, go up to Jerusalem. We have to figure this out. So you go on our behalf. So again, I think that, that teaches the, 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 assemble, the assembly there sends Paul and Barnabas. And so they send them up. And actually, at the end of chapter 15, down in verse 30, after the matter is settled, it's reported back to the gathered congregation. So there's a report given back to the people there in verse 30. So when they, they were sent off, they went out to Antioch. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And so, so again, they're going and reporting back to the whole gathering, the congregation. And notice there, go back up to verse 4. So Paul and Barnabas in this, this, this convoy, they go up to Jerusalem. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed. Notice who welcomes them. By the church and the apostles and the elders. Notice that order there. I think it's significant. They report to the church and the church welcomes them. Again, there's, there's, there's authority in the gathered congregation. And then look down in verse 12. I think this is fascinating. Verse 12, there's this argument going on. They're, they're talking about what, what, what they've seen in Paul and, and Barnabas and Peter. They're, they're talking about all of their experiences as the apostles, as the gospel is spreading. And verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. This isn't behind closed doors. This is the biggest meeting, the biggest potential break in the early church. And here's the congregation sitting there listening firsthand to all that's going on. I mean, this is an open decision. The congregation is going to hear, and then they're going to decide, yes, we're going to send a letter down to our brothers and sisters and tell them, you don't have to be circumcised. And so it's the role of the congregation here in chapter 15. And then again, look down at verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch. And so again, it's not just the apostles and the elders. And again, notice these, these mentions of the whole church or to the whole congregation. They don't have to be added, but they're included in the, these passages because I think it's significant. And so the, the apostles and the elders with the whole church decide, hey, send some of our own men back with them so that they know we do love them. We are on the same team. And so in Acts chapter 15, it's a fascinating chapter because you see all these spheres of authority. You have the apostles, and then you have elders mentioned. Then you have the, the congregation. There's this balance between these three different realms of authority. And the pattern seems to be that nothing is done without the approval or the consent or even the input of the congregation. Okay, and so the congregation has the authority to, to appoint leaders, but really to, to d decide the direction of the church. Authority is given to the congregation. Third, third point, the purity of doctrine. I'm just gonna, I, I've got a handful of passages. I'm just going to read one. This is a powerful passage. So Galatians chapter 1 is connected to the, the issue that was taking place in the, the Jerusalem council. But in Galatians chapter 1, 
Right, so, so here, this passage shows that the, the congregation has the authority to, to maintain or to ensure that doctrine remains pure. So look at Galatians 1. Paul's writing to the church at Galatia. He's heard some bad news about them, and so he's writing to them. Look there at verse 6. Paul writes, to this church, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And notice what he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so Paul here is adamant, as adamant here as anywhere else in the New Testament, the Galatians must not forsake the gospel. They must maintain a pure gospel. They they can't add anything to it. Paul says, you believed it. And now you're turning to a different gospel. And he's, he's assuming that the Christians in Galatia can recognize the false gospel. They, they, they fall and pray to it, but he's, he's writing to them saying, you know better. He assumes that, that, if, that, that they can recognize it because he says, if I ever preach a different gospel, if an angel or anyone else ever preaches a dis- different gospel, let them be accursed, which literally means let them be damned. That's what Paul's saying. You, church, he's writing, you know the true gospel, and when someone preaches something other than the true gospel, let them be accursed. Have nothing to do with them. Which assumes they are responsible for the doctrine that they listen to. And he's saying, don't listen to false teaching. Which is why the congregation has the authority to maintain pure doctrine. The, res- the congregation is responsible for ensuring pure doctrine. I mean, I thought about the Bereans in Acts 17. There, there's Bereans in, in, in Acts 17, verses 10 through 12, where, where Paul goes to the Bereans. And when they listen to Paul, they are more noble than other Jews. And, and when Paul talks to them, they receive the word with, with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if it was so. They were, they were weighing the words of the apostle himself. And so his authority didn't negate their responsibility to, to listen with attentive ears to what he was saying. And so the congregation, the gathered people, are responsible for recognizing true doctrine and being, being able to identify false doctrine. The two other passages that, that we'll look at in, in coming weeks is when, it, when, when Paul talks about qualifications for pastors, 1 Timothy 3.3 3 and Titus 1.9, one of the qualifications is that the pastor is able to teach, that the pastor or the elders hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, which means, notice, those responsible for calling and approving their leaders should be able to know if their leaders are holding fast to sound doctrine. So how am I going to know if a pastoral candidate holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught if I don't know the trustworthy word as taught? And so there's a responsibility on the congregation to, to know the doctrine, to know the gospel, to know its implications, and to know the, the core truths of the Christian faith so that you can hold your leaders accountable. You are the, the, the end, the stopping point of false doctrine spreading in this church. You're responsible. And as I've said many weeks, if I ever preach 
a false gospel or a, a, a heretical doctrine, you better be up here telling me, get down, get down. Then finally, the last point I'll make here, the fir- final point, which, the final point, the overall health of the church. So the congregation has the authority to maintain the overall health of the church. This final point is probably the simplest argument for the authority of the church and also the, the easiest to recognize. The church has the authority and responsibility to maintain the overall health of, of the church, and we see this simply because the vast majority of New Testament letters are addressed to who? Entire churches. In all of Paul's letters, right, which, are, which are situational, they are written into specific context, all of them except for three, the pastoral epistles in which Paul actually says, here's how the church needs to be organized. So those are three that aren't directed uh, immediately to churches. Every other one of Paul's letters are written to the church. So Romans 1.7, Paul says, to, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. First and Second Corinthians both begin, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Galatians, to the churches of Galatia. Ephesians, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Colossians, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. First and second Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, this is, this is at, the, at the outset of Christianity and its spread. So, so we don't have many churches in Philippi. It's not like now where you can go down the street and find five churches. There's the church at Philippi. So he's writing to the church at Philippi. And why this matters, why this is significant, is that in the midst of problems or issues, Paul doesn't single out the leaders or the elders or the pastors. He addresses the congregation, and he does so because the congregation is responsible for addressing the issues, for fixing the problems. Or if Paul is singling out a positive thing he's heard, he singles out the faith of all of them. The church as a whole, because the church is responsible either for fixing the problems or for the good report that he's heard. Paul recognized that the church as a whole was responsible for the whole church. And so he's writing to them because he he says, church, you are the ones. Those of you who know God, who've been filled with his spirit, you're the ones who are going to hear these words and be able to put them into practice and fix the problem. And so under this last point, it must be said that the responsibility of healthy churches lies in the hands of the congregation. The responsibility of healthy churches lies in the hands of the congregation. So if a church isn't healthy, if a church isn't growing, if a church has factions and divisions, if a church has a bad reputation in the community... None of these dilemmas fall solely or primarily on the shoulders of the pastor. Do I need to say it again? It's not my issue if we have issues. These problems are church problems. I'm not commanded or equipped or called to fix the problems. That is our calling as a body. These problems are church problems, and the solutions must be and can only be church solutions. And so this is why we've been, we've been talking about membership and, and accountability and, and calling us to this, because the church is at stake. Now, I want to lead us. We're going to talk about my role later, but, but I want to lead us. But this is a church thing. 
This is, this is all of our responsibility. So the final application as we close. Simply to ask, church member, do you recognize the need for your participation in this local body? You have been given authority for the good of this church. And so in all the areas of authority that we've covered, all these realms of responsibility, they all assume your participation in this body. You, you, you can't exercise your authority rightly if you're not involved A right exercise of authority carries with it a responsibility to express concern, to participate. As a church member, you've been given great authority. We are responsible for this local body, and we must not take this authority lightly. And so I want to urge you, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of you to pursue participation, to pursue involvement in the life of this local church. If not this one, then then another one that holds fast to the true gospel that, that you can be involved in, that you can be related to. And, and that participation, I, I want to urge you to that, to show up, to invest intentionally in relationships, to serve and volunteer, to, to study scripture, to address concerns with individuals when they arise, and, and much, much more. I want to urge you to those things because your authority as a church member has been given to you by Christ himself And when you neglect to use that God-given authority, you are guilty of abdication. Don't abdicate your authority. Don't do it. When you or I fail to function in these ways, we're taking our authority for granted and renouncing our God-given responsibilities. I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that. I want us to use our authority for the good of the church and for the good of our brothers and sisters. Well, let let me pray as we close.